0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska, that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Joshua chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Follow along with me. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, The Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, and they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions, took worn-out sacks for their donkeys, wineskins, worn-out, torn, and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet, and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. They went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, and how, how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? Where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, and to Og king of Bashan who lived in Ashtoreth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. The people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shephirah, Beeroth and Kiriath-Jerim. The people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. And all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, as it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Well, Father, we do ask a blessing over your word. Lord, help our hearts to be open and receptive to what you would speak to us today, trusting that the words of this book are not just the words of men, but they're the words of men as they were carried along, By your very spirit to write, therefore we trust that these are your words. So help us to be open and receptive. Lord, we pray that you would remove any spiritual hindrance in our midst. All of the unseen, invisible things in our midst that we cannot see, that would be like barriers that would prevent us from hearing from you, God, please remove those. We trust that that work is something you are more than capable and able of doing because you left the tomb empty that we we sang about today. And so we pray, Father, that you would do that and that you would come and do a work of transformation in our hearts this morning through the preaching of your word. And I pray finally, Father, that you would take the words of my mouth and the motivations and the intentions of my heart and that you would purify them in these moments that I might bring you honor and glory and that what I say would be helpful to your people um, who are gathered here. So pray that, trusting you to do that work. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. So as I studied this uh, uh, chapter uh, this week, uh, came across a statement that should be on the screen for you here in just a moment, a um, commentator and author, um, as he studied through this, uh, makes this statement, he says, there are no spiritual advances, personally or corporately, that will happen without challenge and conflict. And just think about that statement for a minute no advances spiritually that we're going to make at the personal level or the corporate level um, that are going to be made without some kind of challenge and conflict. The reality is that the the, the Christian life uh, is about spiritual advancement in a physical world. Right? (coughs) It's about spiritual advancement in a... Physical world. In other words, if you want to follow Jesus in this world, uh, then you really should expect to face opposition and uh, challenge, deception, even. The problem is that when we talk about opposition, <coughs> when we talk about advancement, when we talk about challenge, when we talk about these things. We live in a physical reality, but we really need to be thinking and talking about them in an invisible nature. And there's just a disconnect for us because we're physical, right? It, so a disconnect happens. Um, I'm going pick on this, what I picked on last week, consumerism. We talked about that. We've been talking about that in some of our mission and vision stuff. Um, c- consumerism is really uh, a, one of those invisible enemies, I confronted it quite a bit last week, I think. Uh, You could easily add a bunch of other isms that are invisible as well um, in in, in many regards. Uh, Materialism, capitalism, right? Nationalism, individualism, lots of isms you could add to the list. All of those enemies are basically invisible enemies that seek to deceive you and seek to oppose the work of the Word of God in our lives. But the the question is, regardless of which invisible enemy it is that's after you, that has a hold on you, the question is, um, how would you even recognize it? It's invisible. How would you realize when you have actually made some sort of an agreement or pact or covenant with some invisible enemy, okay? So how would you know if, if you had gotten into bed with some invisible enemy in your life? Graphic way of asking the question. And the reason I ask that that way is because it begets a certain kind of intimacy that happens between you and that invisible enemy. Intimacy then is what connects you to that enemy and you're so entangled with it that it's hard to even know that you are. So how would you even know if you are an invisible enemy? How about this? Once you actually realize that you are, when you clearly realize it and you see that for what it is, what are you going to do? Once you recognize, hey, man, there's an invisible enemy that's gotten a hold of me, I've made an agreement with, and I'm in bed with this thing, and I need to get it dealt with. How are you going to deal with it? What are you going to do in those moments? How are you going to resolve the problem? How will you move forward in becoming a Christ follower who worships God in spirit and in truth? How will you do battle with an invisible enemy in a world that values Visible results. How will you do this? Question. I would suggest um, the story that we see here in Joshua chapter 9 is very helpful in this regard because in this story what we see, and you may not have caught it, but what we actually see happening in this story in Joshua chapter 9 is an age-old conflict. It's an age-old conflict between God and Satan. And it's just erupting again between God's people and her enemies. What we see here in this chapter is a very visible portrayal of the Gibeonite deception, right? Gibeonites come and they deceive Israel and her leaders. That story is actually a continuation of an invisible battle between God and Satan that erupted back in the Garden of Eden, if not even previously before that, depending on your theology, and it will continue until the second coming of Christ. That's the two poles at either end. A little bit about Satan. Satan um, is actually not Satan's name. It's just an interesting little concept. If you uh, do the work, um, it's actually a title. Um, Satan is, is actually the Satan. Now, he's, he's nameless. God's enemy is actually nameless. Uh, Thus, Satan actually means deceiver, opposer, okay? <clears throat> enemy. So Scripture um, describes the Satan as the plotter, as the accuser of God's people, as the lion who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and in many other ways. But at the end of the day, the Satan. It's just a big kitty on a leash that is held by the sovereign hand of God. So so even though uh, this opposer, this accuser, this father of lies, this lion, even though uh, he comes uh, and and opposes God's work um, in uh, and, and through me, he does that in such a way that he tries to chop me down, right you might have experienced tries to chop you down like a a weak little sapling uh, the reality is that he is just a tool in the hands of a sovereign god who then uses his own enemy and opposer to simply chop away the deadness in your life so that you can become more of a strong oak tree right that's actually the picture theologically of this cosmic battle between god and his enemy that we see uh, erupting in this Let me think for a minute about the opposition that you face in your life. Think about the things that you have faced. Think about that. Look back at the text, verses 1 through 2. What do we see? We see national opposition, right? There's a national opposition happening here. All the kings of the land have heard about what the Lord was doing in and through the nation of Israel. Agreed? Back in chapter 5, if you look back at chapter 5, you'll notice that those king's hearts had melted like hot butter, right? Out of their fear. And they just kind of isolated themselves and they were hiding from Israel and Joshua. Their livelihoods were in danger. That's the reality. Their livelihoods were in danger. So, motivated by a very invisible enemy, what did they do? They hid out. What was the invisible enemy of these kings? They had a grip on their soul. Fear. Maybe many other things, but that's one that I noticed right away in the text. They were afraid. That invisible enemy motivated them. So, what do they do now? The kings of the land mount this united national opposition against Israel. Right, That's what we see in the first couple of verses. What you see here in the trajectory of the text, the trajectory of the story is that what begins as maybe one or two enemies early on easily and very quickly multiplies into an overwhelming, outright um, assault that if I was standing there might completely demoralize my heart. And isn't that the way it oftentimes happens for us? What begins as something very small winds up multiplying to something huge that just feels like it's going to devastate us. We can't get past this, right? I mean, I imagine being in Joshua and Israel's shoes. Can you imagine that? Maybe imagine this in your own context, right? You pick up the phone, which sometimes is scary to do when someone calls. You pick up the phone. doctor on the phone tells you uh, that what appeared to just be some simple abnormality now is actually a life-threatening illness right? Something that started out very small, now it's something huge that you can't even see how you're going to get past it. Um, the job you had, the job that you had that was barely paying the bills, lays you off for the holidays. Something that was small, it was an issue, became massive. Not sure how you're going to get past this. A sinful addiction, maybe, keeps knocking on your front door, keeps knocking it down. You finally got that door barricaded. Right? Doing everything you can to live in some kind of purity and faithfulness to the Lord. You feel like you got that little thing kicked and somehow it finds its way in through the side door again. And it brings friends. Something that was hard, but it seemed kind of small, multiplies into this massive opposition that you can't seem to get around. And it's all in the physical realm. Right? Fixated on it. can't it past it. You thought that your marriage... Um, or some other relationship that had uh, uh, gone through this season of difficulty. You, you thought it had finally recovered from that. Um, and then suddenly you realize that underneath everything, it hadn't recovered. And it's, it's broken beyond repair. Right? Something that seems small, maybe even gone away, that you kicked its butt, comes back to get you. Like Joshua and Israel... You might see it this way. You might see that you've fought really hard to weather the opposition in, 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 the, in, in the physical realm with all of your enemies, whatever they may be. And then suddenly, you, it's kind of like you wake up or something and, and you find out that all of your enemies are united and, and they're coming against you. And, 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 and you can't get your eyes off of that enemy. It's all you can focus on right? The broken marriage, the addictions, the the lack of money, the, the job, whatever it may be, you can't get your eyes off it because whatever it is, it's way too big for anything else to get in. And you're locked on that thing. I would reverse that and say that thing is actually locked on you. You're so focused on it to the extent that you totally miss the invisible enemy that has snuck right into your heart. A shop inside of your heart, which is what you see happening next in our text, verses three through fifteen. It's a visible enemy, but there's something invisible happening, right? As the Gibeonites sneak into the camp, and you think about this, Joshua has just gathered the Israelites in a valley back in chapter A. He's gathered them in a valley after their victory over Jericho, after their victory over AI. They've gathered there for this old-fashioned praise and worship service, right? And the praise and worship service was complete with a highly visible portrayal of the blessings of the sacrifices for the curse of sin. Altar in the middle, bloodbath. Worshiping on either side of that in front of a mountain of destruction and then a mountain that is beautiful and fruitful. It's all visible. Talk about a spiritual high, right? Kind of like youth camp gathering in a valley, seen in songs. There's a bloody altar in the middle. Next thing that happens, though, in the midst of all that, Fox News or CNN, pick on both sides fairly, or some other variation of some social media outlet broadcast its message of fear, in case you haven't noticed. All of them seem to do that really well broadcast this message of fear regarding the national opposition that is coming down the pipe, right? And you get all up in arms and you run out and you do some things. You see the impossibility of the oppression and the opposition that is coming against you. It captures your heart. It, It captures your mind. You can't get away from it. It's all you think about. And out of the corner of your eye, you catch some movement, right? And you go, what is that? What is that thing? Is that another enemy? You kind of brace yourself maybe for what's coming. You go, oh, it's just kind of some, like, some worn out issue and nagging me in the back of my mind for a while. In these moments, what happens? Enter the Gibeonites. This invisible enemy. Invisible deception. <clears throat> what do you do with this? When you recognize that, well, what do you do with it? What, do you, what does Joshua and Israel do with it. I mean, look at the Gibeonites for a minute back in your text. Think about them for a moment. What do you see? In the physical realm, what do you see? You see some worn out clothes, you see some dried up, moldy old food. They look like foreigners. Probably not going to be a big deal, although in our culture, we think about foreigners, we get afraid. Where do they come from? What do they want? They've heard about your God, they say. They've heard how He destroyed your other enemies. They don't want to face the same fate. They want to serve you. I've got, got to love how they're like, sliding Oh, I mean, let me help. Let me be your servant, the way that our enemies oftentimes can help us you somehow. Serve your deep desires. They want to serve you in exchange for their safety. Seems reasonable. Seems harmless. You make an agreement with them for their preservation. What happens in the passage, right? Now, if you were to flip forward into Joshua chapter ten, verse two, you would notice, and 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 uh, the other pastor is going to preach this next week, but you'll notice. Uh, in that verse, that uh, the Gibeonites are actually a very sizable, very formidable enemy. They are a large nation of cities. They had well-trained warriors. But here's what happened. Instead of a full frontal attack, like the other nations were planning together, this enemy decides to play in the realm of invisible deception so they can stay alive and exert their influence. That's important. I don't have time to go into it. Part of the Old Testament law actually gives lots of provision for this. I'll mention it again here in a moment. But the driving force behind the Old Testament law that gives provision for how to handle a situation like this is simply to keep yourself pure and unstained from the influence of the world that we live in. The question is, how do you do that? How do you live in a physical reality While growing spiritually. How do you be in the world but not of it? The most popular way for Christians in our culture is to make war with it. It's the most popular way. Agreed. We make war with the culture. Because that's what Jesus did. Right? Thought to think through. in the realm of invisible deception to stay alive and exert its influence now historically again god did give some instructions for how to relate to their enemies that were distant from them you can check this out in deuteronomy 20 verse 10 through 18 and in numbers 27 through 21 the basic instruction of those two passages put together is this don't pick a fight with them live at a peaceable distance from them after you sought the Lord's voice as to whether or not they are a threat to you. Okay, That's the basic summary. I spent a lot of time there, but don't have time. Go check it out. The problem in this current passage that we're in is what? What's the problem? The problem is, according to verse 14, if you look back, it is that Joshua and Israel never sought the Lord. They looked like they were, didn't they? They appeared as though they were. I mean, this is just right after a massive worship gathering in the valley. You would think that they would actually seek the Lord on this matter, but what do they do? They don't. They actually rely on what? Their physical senses rather than their spidey senses. No, their physical senses, right? What they could see, what they could taste, what they could touch, what they could smell, what they could hear. Physical realm. They're picking up weapons of Warfare according to our physical existence rather than weapons of our warfare that are according to our spiritual walk. That's what they did. And don't we do this too? Don't we, if we're honest? One author says this. He says that if your enemy cannot kick in the front door, he will slip in through the side door to compromise your trust and obedience to the Lord. Can't come in through the front door come in through the side door. What does this look like in your life? Would you be willing to go there and ask the question, who has snuck in through the side door visibly and has influenced my heart? I mean, you've experienced this many in different ways. Um, Maybe you face down one massive scary enemy all day long, whatever it may be. You get home, you tune out behind the TV. Your marriage, some of the relationship goes through this fiery test. So you renew your commitment to attending church gatherings, right? Your kids rebel. So you got to get them back in youth groups so that you can get them fixed, right? None of those resolutions are necessarily bad at all. In fact, on the surface, they're probably very, very good. But somewhere in the corner of your mind's eye, what happens is you actually make an agreement with some invisible enemy-like comfort, or an invisible enemy like consumerism. And and then at some point, what you realize is that even though you're doing some really good things, as it appears on the surface of the physical realm, somewhere silently in the background, in the darkness, this invisible enemy has set up shop in the midst of your heart. The only reason that you actually watch TV is to escape Into comfort. And the only reason that you actually go to church is to fix some big issue inside of you or your spouse or your kids. And then what happens? The awakening happens. You wake up to that moment and you go, Holy smokes. That's if God's grace and mercy and kindness shines down upon you, right? Because if you never wake up to that moment, then what what lies ahead of you? So if you wake up to that moment and you go, man, I'm in bed with a silent, deceptive, destructive enemy. God, it's God's kindness towards you. What will you do with that moment when that awakening happens is the question. Would you ignore it and walk away? This is what happens in verses 16 through 21. There's a moment of realization. An awakening takes place for Joshua and Israel. For us, someone preaches a message. Or you see a passage that pops up on your Bible app, or a friend confronts you, or God speaks to you in a dream, or you, uh, where you just you wake up to the horrifying reality that you've made some agreements with some very invisible, very deceptive enemies, and they've set up a sweatshop in your heart, an idle factory in the center of your soul. You wake up to that. It's a moment of realization where you recognize that you've. Actually, made decisions on the basis of moldy bread rather than seeking the Lord's direction for your life. It's the moment that you realize that you've walked by sight and not by faith. And because of this, you're now in bed with an invisible enemy that's been deceiving you for longer than you can imagine. Moment of awakening. It's the moment that you realize that comfort is actually your God. It's the moment that you realize that consumerism is actually your master. Or when you realize that individualism is your slaveholder, or that nationalism is your boss, or that capitalism has crept in and it won't leave you alone. What do you do now when you recognize that? What do you think Israel does on the day that they woke up to the reality of the Gibeonite deception? If you look back at the text, you see, number one, that Israel doesn't go ballistic. They don't lose all over the place. They don't attack their enemies in some unbridled. way. Although they want to, right? They don't take to Facebook to whine about the mess they got themselves into because that's the way it would always be victim language. I'm going to whine about the mess I got myself into on somebody else for the reason that I'm here. Hello. They don't, although they do complain. They do complain against their leaders because we love to do that. Again, it's somebody else's fault. Our leaders got us here. We didn't get us here. They do whine against their leaders for holding them accountable to their commitments. At the end of the day, Israel and her leaders decide to honor their agreement for the sake of the Lord's honor. So this is the beginning of the resolution of conflict here. That's the beginning of it. And this final portion of the text in verses 23 through 27 we see simply the resolution of conflict. This is an important um, moment. When you think about resolving conflict, let that sink in for a second. The resolution of conflict. Conflict is actually a very important thing. It's not a bad thing. Oftentimes we look at it as though it's something really, really bad. Conflict's not necessarily bad. A lot of growth happens in the midst of conflict. Things are rubbing against but resolution is important in conflict management. Oftentimes we think the resolution of conflict means the conflict goes away. Not necessarily true. I don't, I don't think that that's really the way we ought to look at it, from a, at least from a biblical mindset. If you want to get into a bunch of psychobabble, maybe. right? But from a theological standpoint, I'm not sure the Bible would necessarily support that idea that resolution to the conflict means the conflict goes away. I think if you look throughout Scripture, um, you would see that resolution is important in conflict management because resolution brings purpose to the tension. Resolution brings purpose to the tension. There's a a kind of tension uh, between the legitimate need for something on the one hand, like comfort or security. There's a legitimate need for that on the one hand. On the other hand... There's the abuse of that natural need that quickly dissolves into a desire that gets overindulged. Tension between that. That's, that's where I think, again, resolution brings purpose to the tension between those two poles. So if what I'm saying here maybe like just pff, it's way over our heads. It's not... Think about this in a practical sense, okay? If I suddenly realize... That I became part of a church because of my out-of-control desire to consume another product or experience, how do I resolve that and bring purpose to that? Because being a part of a church isn't bad. How do I resolve it? I could resolve it, bring purpose to that conflict, just by simply realizing that I am not only a consumer, but I'm also called to be a contributor. I am a consumer of God's grace and God's mercy. Can't stop. That's good. But I'm also to be a contributor. So now it adds tension between those two poles. And you've got to live in that tension for there to be growth that happens, right? So that would be one way of describing what I'm talking about. <coughs> Take this down to a more personal level. If I wake up to the realization that I only got married because of some desired benefits. You can check whatever box you want in your mind because some desired benefits, um, how do I resolve that conflict and bring purpose to that tension? I could do that by simply remembering that I am called to serve my spouse rather than use my spouse for my own agenda. That would bring purpose to the tension there. So that's what I'm talking about when I say that resolution is important in conflict management because resolution brings purpose to tension. That this is exactly what happens at the end of this story. Now turn your attention back to the story, Joshua confronts the deceptive Gibeonites for their lies, right? And then in this radical turn of events, they entrust their lives to Joshua, whose name means God saves. They entrust their lives to Joshua as their deliverer. In the end of the story, catch this, in the end of the story, God's enemies become the hospitality team in the temple. So, I want to spin this into a missional aspect for a moment. Who is it that you think could never step foot in here because they are too sinful? Whoever that is for you, I just want you to know they, whoever they are, could be the hospitality team. But the pathway for them to get there completely relies on the sovereignty of God but he chooses to use you as the vehicle for that. The question is, are you a usable vehicle? Right? The Gibeonites uh, are much like Rahab in this story. Lots of connections between this story and Rahab, and I don't have a lot of time to go there. Out of time. we out of time. When you think about this, liars, prostitutes, Enemies of God. That's the story. not really good people in any way. It's formed into worshipful servants of the rescuer. interesting to note this too, that the Gibeonites, later on in the, the biblical story, um, they are responsible for the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem many years later in Nehemiah chapter 7. <coughs> this is long after the story of Joshua. You go through the entire period of the judges where everybody does what is right in his own sight, guess where that gets them? We've all been there. Right? Long after that, the city's destroyed, the Gibeonites are highly responsible for the rebuilding of that destroyed city. But a miraculous resolution that brings purpose to the tension. The resolution of the conflict of this story, what it does, it reveals God's purpose in shaping all of us into worshipers of Him. That's the point of all of this. I'm going to say it again. The point of all this is making us into worshipers of Him. I want to rail on this again. The songs we sing, that's not worship. All by. Everything we do is worship seem like man it's a thing joe to pick on think of the silent enemy that gets a hold of our hearts in the so that we begin to think that psalms are our worship but not everything else i mean david is very clear in the psalms that he worships while reading god's word does that what does that mean does that mean he's singing psalms well in Roman guard yeah because the psalms right when you're studying God's word, it's worship. When you're serving somebody, it's worship. When you're eating food at home with your family, it's worship. When you're looking at the computer, it's worship. When we're praying, when we're taking communion, it's all worship. This is something that I think is happening in American church that we have failed to get away from. It's a language barrier that allows some silent enemy to get in. It forces us to think, well, for, for, for half an hour on a Sunday morning, I'm going to worship God through these songs. What about the rest of our week? It creates consumers rather than contributors. When you begin to understand that the way that you walk through that door in the morning, you are making a contribution to the worship of a church family. It changes things. It radically changes things. It might seem small, but it's not small. So, purpose of this passage, object of our worship. That's really if you're going to continue to drill down, it's the object of our worship. What do you worship? Who do you worship? See, it's always been about the object of our worship, going all the way back to the beginning in the Garden of Eden, right? It was about the object of Adam and Eve's worship. Back to when the Satan fell from heaven, it was about the object of his worship. Who was the object of Satan's worship? Himself. Keep that thought in your mind for a moment. Come back to Israel. The issue is about Israel's worship. Who are they going to trust? Who are they going to obey? Who's going to be at the center of their lives? My way of application, uh, last week once again, uh, at the end of Joshua 8, I hammered away, have continued to hammer away again, and an invisible enemy that I believe is absolutely deadly, called consumerism. I keep coming back to that word. Probably making some of you really uncomfortable. I'm tired of hearing it, maybe. Consumerism is an invisible motivation of the heart that moves us into patterns of consuming one product or experience after the neck in our quest to, to satisfy a deep hunger or a deep thirst in our souls. This time of the year is a year where that, I believe, that sleeping giant, so to speak, that invisible enemy gets awakened in full force. I mean, I can't tell you how many Black Friday commercials I saw this week. And I'm thinking about, man, what, what, what could I get? Why? Well, I, I got everything I need. I don't need any more guns. I don't really need a new truck. I want one, but I don't need one. A bigger house would be great. You see, you just start thinking about these things. It's so easy, isn't it? Something thirsting and hungering inside of me that gets awakened by this. Now, I referred to consumerism last week as a worship disorder that can only be remedied. By coming under the rule of our rescuer at the cross of Calvary. Again, you still may wonder what this has to do with you. You might even be tempted to think that because you're here today, you are obviously exempt from the clutches of consumerism, which makes you better than me, which is okay. But at the same time, you might also wonder what consumerism and the study of Joshua actually have in common. That's the question I would be asking in the audience if I heard a pastor preaching this way. I'd be like, what does consumerism actually have to do with Joshua? I don't see the word there. Hmm. I mean, Joshua appears to be a book on the surface that is centered on Israel's physical conquest of the Promised Land, right? Be sure that's the narrative of the book. Um, Then the question becomes this, would you actually do better to apply the narrative of this book to some other visible enemies that we see in our world. That's the common evangelical Christian approach. We're going to apply the narrative of this story, all the physical things we see in our world. You need to be Joshua. Lead your people against all the bad things in this world. Agreed? This is common narrative in the church today. Might I think that God might judge the church for taking that stance from this passage? And from the book of Joshua. I would be bold enough to say that. Read through the prophets and see the way that God judges not typically all those nations out there that one of those bad, horrible things but judging his people in the church. Okay? So I don't think that we should be talking about how to leverage all of our physical resources, our time, our talent, our treasure for the advancement of God's spiritual justice, highly politicized world. Why would I continue to take aim at something like consumerism when there's tons of other worthwhile enemies in the world around us? I've already kind of given you the answer. Here's another answer to that. Consumerism, while invisible, leaves an absolutely visible path of destruction behind it. A consumerism is similar to a termite in its invisible nature. The effects of consumerism, like the termite, actually, listen, weaken and erode the spiritual lives of believers within a church community, which then weakens the power of that church in that community. Same as in a marriage. I think that consumerism may very well be one of the most devastating enemies of the church today, especially in the American culture, because consumerism, I believe, is one of the most deeply held values of our nation. (coughs) The real danger for us, I think, lies in our bent towards fighting enemies in the physical realm with physical weapons rather than in the spiritual realm with spiritual weapons, and here's what we do. We dress it all up in some really cute spiritual language, while at the same time we totally miss the hold that our invisible enemies have upon our hearts. So the question is, how deeply do you think that an invisible enemy like consumerism actually holds hammered one enemy because it's good to hammer away on one. There's a bunch of others, right? How deeply do you think that one has a hold on you? If America really is infected with that invisible poison, then how much of your heart has been shaped by that value? Because then what you worship, the way that you worship, the object of your worship changes, right? And question again, how would you even know if your life was infected with that poison? Dressed up in religious language. Think about the struggles you face for a moment. Think about the things that bother you the most fear, loneliness, disconnectment, worry, laziness, addictions, overworking. What is your struggle? And what's at the center of your struggle when you think about whatever your struggle is? What's at the center of it? I better ask this question Who's at the center of your struggle? Right? Who's at the center? Um, how surprised would you be if you stripped all of your struggle? If you could take the struggles that you have, you could strip them away, and you could set them on a plate over here, and you strip them away from all the religious languages you use to describe them? If you did that work, would you be surprised to find yourself standing at the center of your existence where the Son of God belongs? So the Christian life is about spiritual advancement in a spiritual or in a physical reality. There, there are no spiritual advancements personally or corporately that will happen without challenge conflict. If you want to follow Jesus in this world, then you should expect to face opposition and deception. The Christian who desires comfort in the church doesn't really desire to be like Christ. Jesus, in conclusion, left the comforts of heaven. That's the Jesus I know. He left the comforts of heaven to come to this sin-stained earth to rescue you. He was beaten nearly to death. He was nailed to a cross on a lonely hilltop. He was crucified alone between two criminals. His friends abandoned him in his hour of greatest need. He was dead before sundown. He got tossed in a borrowed grave. And He did this because you and I love to serve ourselves just like the Gibeonites did. He did this so that by God's grace, you may come to Him in faith, so that He might forgive your sin. Okay? His, his body was broken, His blood was poured out so that consumers like you and I could become contributors to the power of the empty tomb. That's the message of the gospel. That finds its way all throughout the scriptures. Here's the reason that he did this. Similar to what Chris read earlier from my friend Jim's website. He did this so that liars and beggars and thieves and prostitutes and any other outcast that you can put a name on. Come and be transformed members of the family of God. Jesus is meant to be the object of our worship. And the question is, is are you convicted that maybe you've made yourself the object of your worship? And if that's you, if you're in that place, then here's what you may do. You may cast yourself upon him, just like the Gibeonites did with Joshua, and you may say, I am in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to me, do it. That's trust. And what I know to be true and what many of us in this room know to be true is that when you do this, Jesus will be faithful to make you into a transformed worshiper of Him in spirit and in truth. A person who has been transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might give yourself away in worship, not just during the closing songs of a service, but for the rest of your life. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, as we close today, I pray that you would help us to meet you. In fact, I pray, Father, that that you would come and meet us in some very special ways as we close. That you would turn our hearts and our minds to the work of your son Jesus at the cross in the empty tomb that you would remind us that your body was broken and your blood was shed on our behalf. Would help us to recognize that um, you've given everything that you had for us so that we could um, come to you as the real beggars that we really are with the real worn-out clothes that we really have, so that you might take those filthy rags, worn-out clothes that are uh, stained with sin, and you might replace them with robes of righteousness, Help us never to forget, Father, that you haven't done this just for us. You've done this for many more. People that we may never think would come close to you. I pray that you would do that work in us this morning. Trust you to do it. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from the well